0: Well, thank you, Pastor Roman, and if you're newer to Nacogdoches or to one of our freshmen that have come in, I know you're probably thinking, I, I just hope I can find a church that will preach on relevant things like a genealogy this morning. You are in luck, you're welcome here at Grace Bible Church. Now, why would we preach through the genealogy? It's something that most of us on our Bible reading plans through the scriptures in a year, we usually tend to gloss over them, don't we? If you're in a small group and you're reading the genealogy, the person whose turn it is to read probably says, and you can read it yourself. And they skip right over that. Well, we believe that all of Scripture is God-breathed and is useful in all the ways that the Lord has intended. And so we preach through books of the Bible as our custom here. Uh, and, and so as we do so, we're going to note several components of this genealogy. And one thing that we want to note is the unique placement of the genealogy. This isn't at the very beginning as we have in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, this rather is kind of right at the crux of the action. The, the drama has already been building. It is built to a point that, that Moses, for the second time, he did it in Exodus 4, now he does it this scene. He cries out to the Lord, how in the world, Lord, how can the people possibly follow me? How can Pharaoh possibly listen to me if your people do not believe me? He's at this crisis of of doubt and the Lord has told him that he will extend out his hand. And what we see in the placement of this is is a lot like when you would watch primetime television and the drama would build to the cliffhanger and then what would happen? The commercial break. The commercial break would happen and then you'd go to the restroom or you'd stop and you'd talk about what was taking place there and then you'd come back four minutes later and then it would pick up the story. Now, the goal of this and the placement and the Lord's kindness and by Moses' intention, is not to place the genealogy so that we can take a breather and go reset ourselves, but rather it's because our attention now is dialed up to a 10 out of 10. And so we bring our attention to slow down on the names. Because every one of us knows when death is near or whatever the situation that brings us right into the crisis moment, we're zoomed into it. We can't see any larger picture at all. And the genealogies are a gift for us to give us the ultimate giant picture of the story of what the Lord is doing. And so the Lord uses the genealogy, and Moses kindly places the genealogy here for us to see that all of these things, even though Moses is this doubting deliverer, all of these things are happening by the hand and fulfilling the promise of God. Even though the deliverer of the Lord is shaken, the Lord is not unshaken. He's faithful to His promises. And so this morning, as we walk through our time together, we, we examine this reality that all of these stories will ultimately point us to the redemptive river of the cross of Christ, that all who believe in Him, the Lord will bring forth streams of living water. This genealogy anchors the reader, both of the promises to Abraham, but also the future coming at this time in our text of the promised Messiah, the promised Christ, the promised king. So we're going to note today three observations that we want to remember when we read the genealogies, and particularly this genealogy that's a gift for us in our faith to be encouraged this morning, to gain a healthy perspective. So let's look first as we note the reality that God knows every name. God knows every single name. Now, If you were to pay a genealogical service to do some research for you, to figure out your past, and and they brought back a selection of names rather than the totality of your names, you'd probably ask for a refund. But in ancient genealogies, it's common to give a selection here and there. What I want to note in this is that this genealogy contains for us big names and small names. Big names. So as we read a genealogy, if you're like me, when you come across it, you come across a name that you know, what do you do? Moses and Aaron, I know them. Simeon, I think I know him. And then you read some of the others and you just kind of put your head down and wait for the silence to pass. And as Roman reads it, you're like, I'm glad he's reading it, not me. (laughs) And so there's big names and there's small names. Let's look at a couple of the big names here for us. Let's look at first. It begins with Jacob's firstborn son. That's Reuben. So remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So Jacob's son would be the great-grandson to come. But Jacob's firstborn son and secondborn son, Reuben and Simeon, are mentioned here. Now, if you're a note-taking person, and I encourage you, I think it's helpful to be, you can write down in your notes or in your scriptures, if you're taking notes this morning, Genesis 32. Genesis 32, right there by Reuben or Simeon's name. This is Jacob's firstborn son. Because what's happening is we're being tethered back into the book of Genesis. So if we were preaching to the book of Genesis, we'd be often referencing Exodus and the rest of the Pentateuch, the rest of those first five books. We'd also be, as we read Exodus then, we've noted how we're constantly going back to Genesis to understand how these things fit in the promises and the goodness of God. Well, Jacob's story, as you remember, he takes his brother's birthright, he flees, and he gets in this scene in Genesis 32 in which he wrestles with God, and God takes him, and changes his name to Israel. This one that struggled with God and man and was successful. The Lord changes his name. And we think of many of these names mentioned, chiefly the sons of, of Jacob, were tied back to Abraham. Why are we tied back to Abraham? It's a reminder of the covenant, the promised faithfulness of God, that He keeps His Word. The covenant God made with Abraham is significant for us as believers. Why? Because it's anchored in the faithfulness and the working of the Lord. Not in our efforts or our best works, not in Israel's, but rather in the faithfulness of the Lord. We see in Romans, God tells us that Abraham believed God and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And, the Ab- and so when we think about this, I, I think of our preschool ministry. I oh, so appreciate it. As a matter of fact, if you've served in our preschool ministry, or you are ever of Jenny's here or Katie or... Caitlin or Elizabeth, would you, would you raise your hand if you've served in our preschool ministry at all? Yeah, unashamedly. Some of you are ashamed, right? This is just, <laughs> I'm not going to volunteer you to get up and leave. I know how you work. You're like, it's a trap. It's going to send me over for backup. No, that's not the case. But our preschool ministry, our kids' ministry, is absolutely incredible. And so our preschool ministry views that ministry as, as gaining an understanding of the Lord in His Word. They're going to the New Testament now. But as they do so, there's this story of the Bible song that our preschoolers learned. We could bring them up here, and they could probably all perform it for us. And so we think of a covenant. Those that have been familiar in serving in preschool ministry, help me out. What is a covenant? A covenant contains a, yes, a covenant is a promise, and it contains a, the land, the, and a, hey. And so all these things. So if you're like, where can I serve? you're going to not only learn the story of Scripture, but you're going to help create excitement in our kids of the story of God. So let's walk through each of those. with just a sentence or two as we think about how this genealogy tying back to Abraham ultimately by referencing Jacob and Israel, how this reminds us of the covenant that the Lord made. So let's think of the land. How would this encourage Moses in his moment of doubt and crisis? Well, it's a reminder that God's faithful to his promises. He promised to lead the people and to give, the descendants of Abraham, a land. Well, in order to inherit the land and to go into the land, what has to happen first? They have to exit Egypt. And so this is a story of and a reminder of God's faithfulness that Moses will be successful in this endeavor because the Lord has given it to him. He will deliver his people. He use Moses and Aaron to do so, but he will deliver his people. The second, we think of a land and a seed. We think of the stars the, that 100-year-old Abraham and his bride of 90-year-old Sarah will have these multitude of descendants, the stars in the sky. We see and we think of God's faithfulness in all these things. And so when we read the genealogy, we remember every name is a mark of God's faithfulness. When we read of a land and a seed and a blessing, the blessing that will happen, God promised Abraham that what? Those that bless you will be blessed, and those that curse you will be cursed. Now we're getting it. Here we go. Now we're talking, getting excited. So if you're a note-taking person, remember to write down Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis 15. Genesis 12, the covenant is made that the Lord is based upon the Lord's faithfulness with Abraham. But then Genesis 15, we see it ratified. We see the circumcision uh, that's done as a sign of faithfulness. And that reminds us then of Exodus 4. Remember when Moses is leaving with his family and that that threat of death that will take place because they don't honor that? They forget that as they're about to enter into the land? But we think about blessing as we read these names in the genealogy. I don't know about you, but I've never met a person as old as some of the names mentioned in that. What's a reminder to us? It's a reminder that God is faithful to bless his people. As we wonder, how in the world did Israel multiply so ferociously? Well, If you have long, long lives and the Lord is blessing and opening the wombs, that's how. Because he's God and we are not. It's amazing how sometimes even historians will wrestle and look at and they'll say, how in the world could Israel multiply so ferociously? And yet the beginning of the story is what? That the Lord opened a barren womb. He's God. He's God and he's faithful in all his ways. Land and seed and a blessing. Now, I told you to write down Genesis 12. As you think about Genesis 12, what we see there is the very the patriarch Abraham actually went to Egypt, if you remember. And when he went into Egypt, he was scared about his wife Sarah because she was so beautiful. She was, she was scared about what might happen. Called her to the sister. She ends up going. Pharaoh ends up like, hey, come on in. And what happens? What did the Lord do to the Egyptians at that moment? You remember? The Lord brought his judgment. The Lord brought plagues upon Egypt and Pharaoh. And so in this genealogy is likewise a reminder to the larger story that he's already done the things he's about to do through Moses to lead a deliverance of Israel, just as he did to Abraham to deliver him from Pharaoh's grasp. So we're we're reminded of the Lord's faithfulness in all these things. These things do not shake the Lord. As I mentioned, there's big names and there's small names. There's names that we read and we say, who's that again? There's names that we read and we actually could say they're not only such small names, but they're nameless. There's a number of names here that we actually don't get their name. Sha'al's mom in verse 15. We're reminded of this. And right beside verse 15, I'd appreciate if you would write down Exodus 12, verse 38. Because there's a common thread here. So you can believe when we get to Exodus 12, we're going to reference back to this spot. Because most commentators pick up this reality that that Israel's line is not pure. As a matter of fact, look at exactly who's mentioned here in Exodus 15. Charles' mom we read about here. Simply, she's described, not with the name, but with the description, she's a Canaanite woman. And when, spoiler alert, Israel's successful and let out of the land of Egypt, eventually as they stand on the gate of going into the promised land. They will be told not to intermarry with the pagan nations. Why? Because the Israelites will forget the personal name of the Lord. They will forget Yahweh, the Lord God. They will not worship Him or make sacrifices to Him. Instead, what will happen? They'll make an exchange. They'll begin to worship the pagan gods. And in doing so, God who is holy and just will bring His judgment upon Israel So the Canaanites, though, as this genealogy reminds us, is that Israel's line, before that command is given, before they come into the land, Israel is a hodgepodge. It's a melting pot of people. A Canaanite woman here, blessed in the line. God knows every single name. i gonna say that again. God knows every single name. How does that strike you this morning? One of the joys of being a a multi-generational church and having senior adults is is oftentimes the candor, the honesty by which they speak. Or I should say many of you speak. And in doing so, I'll never forget one interaction in which someone informed me is part of the reason they share stories, this person anyway, I share stories and mention so many different people's names from their past. is this feeling of it's their responsibility to keep the memory of that person that's now passed alive. Not only friends and family, but, but others that they were acquainted with. It's like they're died and forgotten. That's a scary feeling to feel lonely, isolated, passed over, and forgotten. Believer, understand that the Lord knows every single name. He knows the Canaanite woman's name, He knew her in her mother's womb. No one's too small for the Lord our God. That's the faithfulness of our God. I ask you, do you know Him? Do you know Him? So, my friends, we see in thinking of genealogies first that God knows every name, and second, God is faithfully working out His plan using even broken people. God uses even broken people, to which, what should we say to that? Amen! That's the truth. Amen means that's the truth. I agree. I have wonderful this is good news that the Lord used broken people why because he ain't going to use me or any of us that's right we all come short of the glory of God every one of us we don't gather to show our resume and say look how great we are we gather because of the finished work of the Lord we rest in him and we minister in him we're reminded of what's been done for us and the joy that we have in him that we rest in the finished work of Christ and out of that finished work we labor being poured out as an offering for the glory of God, living sacrifices. That's why this is good news. Do you know Christ in that way? Or have you been trusting in your own works to clean yourself up? The genealogy is a reminder that you'll never measure up. We may present ourselves to others as though we measure up and we're good enough or clean enough or we've sinned less or have put ourselves on a positive trajectory, but the reality is we are not holy as God is holy. This is filled with shameful stories. As a matter of fact, in Exodus chapter two, verse one, when Moses is t- tells us about his upbringing and and the being saved at the scene of the Nile, that his name of his father is not mentioned. Now, he doesn't mention it. I think because it's just not relevant. In the same way, you, I might share a story about my parents, but I might not say George and Bonnie. It doesn't mean I'm not ash- I'm, I'm ashamed of them. It simply means that it's not relevant to the story. But here now we see Moses' father's name and a key detail. It's a little awkward. Again, let me ask you, if you could choose if I said, "Hey, can you share with me five family members of yours?" Would you give me the names that maybe have a mark of incest in them? Would you give me a name that has a murder in them? A coward? A doubter? What names would you give me? Well, the genealogies of the Lord are filled with honest names. Why? Because it's true. And it's God's story. When we look at history, we see something very interesting with the Egyptians. And most every culture, nearly every nation, takes and glamorizes, most oftentimes, the victories and downplays the defeats. That's what Egypt does in Egypt's history. Almost none of the pharaohs mention any defeats that take place. But you read the story of Israel here and what takes place. Pure honesty of massive defeats and massive shameful situations. So much so that let's talk a little bit about who Moses' mom and dad is. What's the genealogy tell us? That Moses' father married married his own aunt. He married his own aunt. Moses' and Aaron and Miriam's father and mother are tied together in a relationship in which Amram married Jochebed, his aunt. And Dr. Douglas Stewart and many other commentators I think probably make this point as well, but he does a great job of pointing out that the Septuagint. So when we think about the Scriptures, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. Most of the entirety of it, just a little touch in Aramaic. And the New Testament's written in Greek. And so what took place by the time that Jesus is sent is that the Hebrew has already been translated over into the Greek, so more people are able to have access and to read it. And the Greek, the common language of the time and written language. And so that's called the Septuagint. Septuagint. And the Septuagint, the translator of this specific text, in the Septuagint, does not translate. And there's no reason he does this. There's no textual evidence why he should have done what he did. But the translator later on of the Septuagint, of this text, characterizes Moses' dad as marrying his cousin, not his aunt. And Douglas Stewart and others theorize that's because Leviticus 18 provides a very clear condemnation of that. But there's not something explicit that, that condemns marrying a cousin. And so the translator was so embarrassed by this fact that Moses, this key patriarch, the one from whom the law is given by the Lord, grace and truth through Christ, but the law by Moses, the translator is so embarrassed that he tries to clean up his own history, probably as a Hebrew man. And he translates it as a cousin rather than as an aunt. Now, what about your story? As we saw in Aaliyah's story a moment ago, every one of us in our testimonies, we're all marked by sin. It's the Lord that must clean us up, and Him alone. The rest of this account has so many different examples of brokenness that are contained therein. One of those is Korah's rebellion, right down number 16. I'm not going to take time to go to all the stories that contain shameful things, but we'll just look at a couple of them. And then we'll each take turns coming up and sharing ours. Number 16. In number 16, we have Korah's rebellion mentioned. Now, if you have not read number 16, you've got to read number 16. It is absolutely astounding. It's one of my favorite stories as a kid growing up. So, in number 16, but to be honest with you, confession here, I didn't realize until this week preparing this who Cora was. I know he was important, but I didn't realize, until studying and looking over this genealogy, I realized that Korah was Moses' cousin. Now stay with me here, why this is significant. Because Korah is going to lead the charge to overthrow Moses and Aaron once they successfully led the Israelites out of captivity. Korah is successful. He uses all the manipulation and politicking, And he gets everyone persuaded in Israel to overthrow Moses and Aaron. He's successful. But there's only one problem. God is God. And so what does the Lord tell Moses and Aaron? Hey, scoot away from Israel because I'm about to consume them all in a moment. What does Moses and Aaron do? They're broken. And they plead to the Lord, please don't wipe out these people. Instead, only... Take the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. What's what's Moses praying? I always knew that part, but I never realized he was praying that the Lord would only kill his family members. The holiness of God will not be toyed with. And look what it says in response in verse 31 of number 16. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. And the earth opened its mouth, and swallowing them up with their households, and all the people who belonged to Korah, and all their goods. So they and all that that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, into the depths, into death. And the earth closed in over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And look what happened. And all Israel who were around them fled as they cried. For they said, Let the earth, lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed 250 men. Offering the incense. And speaking of incense, we have Aaron's sons in the genealogy. We'll see Aaron's sons several times in Exodus, but we have Nadab and Abihu here. And we read in Leviticus 10 of their fate. They offer, they take liberties with the commands of God and how the Lord is to be worshiped and sacrifices are to be made. And they offer their own special ingredient of incense what happens? The Lord strikes them dead at the moment. Those guys are included here in this genealogy. Aren't you grateful that the Lord is able to even work through shameful, painful stories? Aren't you grateful the Lord can work through broken people? That's the goodness of our God. That's the principle of embarrassment. That's what historians call it. They look at stories and accounts. It's just like if we share a story, we probably share the good parts of ourselves and downplay the parts where we've come short, even personally. Forget historians, we think of our own personal history. And historians look at this and they look at Scripture and just think of the larger view of Scripture, all the shame and embarrassment that's recorded in Scripture. We look at Moses' doubting. We think, even in the New Testament, particularly in the New Testament, who's the first people? That goes and finds Jesus' tomb on the third day? Is it his disciples? The men that ate with him and spent three years with him, hearing all of his teaching and examining him and believing and seeing all the miracles and knowing he he speaks as one with authority. Do they believe? They're scattered, they're terrified. It's the testimony of these women, a testimony at the time that would have probably been worth less than others. They're the ones that are the first eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ, the empty tomb. What about Paul, who wrote most of the books of the New Testament more than any other? He is holding the robes of the men that will execute the believer and deacon Stephen. What about Peter? He's rebuked by Paul for a shameful mistake he makes in favoring the Jews. Beloved, we come to Scripture honest with faults and all, not to look for a perfect person to model ourselves off of, but rather the only begotten Lamb of God, the promised Christ. He's our hope. Exodus itself and the genealogies are a reminder that it is the story of a faithful God in the midst of his faithful people, accomplishing his glory and working out our good to all that will turn and trust in Jesus. We have a perfect and good Savior and deliverer. But oh, if we look to men or women, we will find ourselves grasping at air. But all who look to Christ find life. This is what leads us to this third component. First, this understanding that God knows every name. Second, the reality that ultimately God is faithfully working out His plan, even using broken people. And third, that the little stories are like creeks that flowed to the redemptive river of the promised Christ. The promised Christ. You see, every name that we read, every name that we read is an act of mercy. Every story we read about in a newspaper today of a birth is an act of the mercy of God. What did God tell Adam would happen if he ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? They would surely die. We turn to the next page in Genesis chapter 4 and we read of their sons. We read of Cain and Abel in light of the promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and we think maybe this is the promised Christ. Maybe this is that promised seed that will bring life and blessing to the nations. But it's not. Cain kills Abel. Seth and Seth's line. Perhaps he'll come here, but all the people did wicked continually in their own eyes. They did what was right, not the way of the Lord. We look to Israel, these people that are to be a light to the nations, A people without even a king because their king is the Lord, and yet they'll demand a king to be like the nations. The priests, and we see three relationships in which the priests marry, and so much of the Old Testament is marked by the fall of Israel by the priests who will lead the way in debauchery. Well, look at the names that we have here. The little stories lead to the promised seed, the promised Christ. Look at the name that we have here. And all of those, who does Aaron marry? Elisheba. And Elisheba is described as a Judahite woman. Who's the one that will come from the tribe of Judah? Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3. Write down those references. Matthew chapter 1, verse 4, and Luke chapter 3. The genealogies of Jesus, we know that one of the requirements is that he had to come from the tribe of Judah. And specifically entailed in this description and in these genealogies of Jesus Christ is that Elsheba, a Judahite woman, she's the daughter of who? Amenadab. Amenadab. That's a fun one to say. Let's work on that together. Ready? Amenadab. Abinadab is in the genealogy of Jesus, the one who is of the tribe of Judah. This little genealogy right here at the pinnacle of Moses' doubt anchors itself to Abraham and the covenant faithfulness of God. Like this little quiet stream flows itself to the promised Christ by way of Abinadab. The one who would come, who would crush the head of the serpent, the one who lived a sinless life, that's Jesus. We said that he knows every name. The question is, do you know Christ? Are you forgiven by the authority of God? When we think of baptism, as we saw a little earlier, that's a public profession and a unity with Christ and his work in His righteous life and atoning death and make right glorious work on the cross, glorious resurrection. He's ascended to heaven where He makes intercession for us. So as believers, we go to Him with confidence, with our cares and our anxieties. and We trust that He is coming again one day soon and He will make all things right. He will bring judgment. But He has deployed us as a people all across the world And for us, for this little season of our life here in East Texas, until we should die or He should come first. And we faithfully minister out of the goodness of the finished work of Christ. So the question is, as these stories and genealogy leads forward to Jesus, since the coming and the work of Christ on the cross, has the greatest story ever come into your life? Jesus, in John chapter 7, said whoever believes in me as the scripture has said out of his heart will flow rivers of living water and now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive For as yet the spirit had not yet been given because jesus had not yet been glorified has your life been brought anew do you desire christ do you know him To the believers in the room, you see, when we gather, a reminder to the way of life. I love what uh, Aaliyah said in her story. That's much better and much less tiring to trust God and to obey Him than it is to try to run and do it your way. It's a promise that is offered to you for we as a church are sinners that come by the grace and the work of christ we have confidence and we sing to him with joy because we know the one who is sovereign and good that's what we're reminded of in the genealogies do you know jesus he has all things in his hand even when his people are unsettled do you know jesus On our next steps, I want to summarize what I just said in this little simple point. Has your little story yet encountered Christ? And if not, would this day, would you give your life to Jesus? We're going to have ministry leaders at the end of the service, right up here in the front, to pray with you and to encourage you and to celebrate with you in your next steps. Be not ashamed this day to turn from sin and trust in Him. He's a worthy Lord. There's no better. Amen? Second, would you consider diving into God's Word with a small group this fall? We have men's ministry, we have women's ministry studies that will be firing up in September. But the key is, we talk about as a church family, a key mode of discipleship, a key way of discipleship is that we're in God's Word with people, that we can see each other's face as we're in God's Word together. We gather together, gospel center worship, we live lives in sacrificial service, we build community as a family being renewed by the power of Christ's love. The Lord's making us new. We're, showing, we're being made hospitable, grace-giving people. People that love truth and, and, and also walk in the grace and the kindness of our Lord. More and more and more until the day we die. But do you have a group that you can get in God's Word with and walk through it? That's what our small group's for. And, and as Pastor Stephen mentioned, on your card there's a little spot you can check small group. You place that on the offering box on your way out this morning. We want to connect you to a group this fall semester. I assure you, we don't know what the fall has for us. Nobody does, do we? Do they? Does anybody? We know the Lord does. But I do know this, every one of our lives will be better if we're tethered to other believers around God's Word. Be known and get to know others in a group. And finally, the Lord is Israel's deliverer, but He uses, as verse 13 finished, this Moses... And Aaron. The outcome was assured, but the work was Moses and Aaron's to still do. We'll see more about that next week. And so, beloved, you are assured and you have peace of your destiny and you have a confidence because of the finished work of Christ, but he has prepared before the foundations of the world good works as believers for us to walk in joyfully as we each uniquely go into our own places of work and our own neighborhoods, our own apartments, and our own classes. So let us go with full hearts and confidence and joy because of Jesus Christ. Little streams flowing to a big river. Would you stand with me as we sing praises to the one who's worthy of our song this morning?